Laura London, and this is a special video edition of Speaking of Jung. Returning to us today for episode 126 is Jungian analyst and anthropologist, Dr. Henry Abramovich in Jerusalem, Israel. Canadian by birth, he holds a PhD from Yale University and a diploma in analytical psychology, which is the degree of a Jungian analyst from the Israel Society of Analytical Psychology. He is Professor Emeritus in the Department of Medical Education at the Sackler School of Medicine at Tel Aviv University, where he taught the human side of medicine and served as Director of Behavioral Science in the American program for over 30 years. Dr. Abramovich is founding president and a senior training analyst at the Israel Institute of Jungian Psychology in honor of Eric Neumann, and is the former president of the Israeli Anthropological Association. He has done field work on death rituals in the Malagasy Republic and in Jerusalem, and is active in the Israel Interfaith Encounter Association. He has served on ethics and program committees of the International Association for Analytical Psychology, the IAAP, and teaches and supervises routers in their developing groups in Eastern Europe and Kazakhstan. Since the beginning of the war, he has led a reflection group for Ukrainian analysts on Zoom. Dr. Abramovich is the author of The First Father Abraham, the Psychology and Culture of a Spiritual Revolutionary, Brothers and Sisters, Myth and Reality, which were the 2014 Fay Lectures, Why Odysseus Came Home as a Stranger, and Other Puzzling Moments in the Life of Buddha, Socrates, Jesus, Abraham, and Other Great Individuals, and with Murray Stein, the plays The Analyst and the Rabbi, My Lunch with Thomas, and Eranos. His first novel, Panic Attacks in Pistachio, a psychological detective story, was published in June by Chiron. This episode is made possible by the revolutionary new dream recording app, Temenos Dream. Discover the hidden meaning of your dreams using symbolism, literature, mythology, AI-generated art, and an optional social network. Download the free app, available for both iOS and Android, and create a free account by October 15th to get free premium access for life. Please use the link in the description box below or on our website, speakingofyoung.com, where you will find links to everything discussed in this episode in the show notes. This video interview is being recorded on Thursday, September 28th, 2023 through the magic of StreamYard. It is great to see you, Dr. Abramovich. It's great to see you, Laura, and great to be back on the iconic Speaking of Jung. Okay. Yes, you were here uh, with Murray Stein back in 2019. I think it was early in, in the year, in January. And we did an episode on the play that you two wrote, The Analyst and the Rabbi, which is now available um, on YouTube in its entirety. And uh, there's also a paperback book that was of the screenplay and some additional material that was uh, published by Chiron. Let me tell you how that project began, Laura. Yeah. It's a little like a fairy tale. Miri and I were good colleagues and I wanted him to come to Israel. And finally I persuaded him. He didn't give a lecture, we had a conversation. And then the next day I took him to Masada the amazing fortress hilltop overlooking the Dead Sea. Mm. There we discovered that we were both actually born in Canada and both were at Yale, almost, just didn't overlap. We didn't know each other there. And he said, yeah, I said, yes, you know, when I was an undergraduate, I was very involved in drama. And suddenly he turned to me with an out-pointed arm and he said, you are the man. <laughs> and he explained that he wanted to write a play about the meeting, the historic meeting between Jung and Rabbi Leo Beck, and he needed somebody who would know what a rabbi would say. So mm. I was the man. And since then, we have three completed productions and two more in process. Maybe I'll just mention the one that's, that we're working on right now. Yeah. It's a topic that's very neglected in depth psychology, and it's about friendship mm. and friends, the joy and the difficulties of being friends. 
And I heard you mention friendship in the Festriff webinar, mm -hmm. which we just had for Dr. Stein uh, on mm -hmm. his 80th birthday last month. That too is available in its entirety on YouTube. And you mentioned uh, what you read in Dr. Stein's book on uh, t titled Men Under Construction. Yes, this is a, this is a, uh, I would say one of his many masterpieces. It's based on lectures he gave some time ago, but just came out very recently. And it's some of the most profound things about why men have such difficulty in a way it's for women. I think the challenges are easier today, ironically, mm -hmm. and for men they've lost their way. And I think this image of, of in construction is very good. And then in one of the chapters, he, he does this amazing analysis of the difficulty of friendship between men, the stages they go through, and the difficulty of finding true friendship. And so my chapter was called, for, in honor of Murray, it was called, Who is a Friend? Friendship in the Process of Individuation. Mm. And thank you for mentioning that, because I had no idea that uh, men struggled with friendship and that and the importance of friendship. I. Uh, I don't have any children mm -hmm. and I, my friends are so important to me mm -hmm. and I, it, it is, it's a, it's a, friends are a choice, you know, and um, it was so heartwarming to hear what you had to say in that Festriff about how you felt about Murray. Um, and then it made me realize I don't hear many people talking like that. And so mm -hmm. it, it, it brought, it brought that to my attention. So I want to thank you for that. Yes. Well, I think women naturally, a woman who doesn't have a friend is in great distress mm. in America, particularly because it's different here in Israel. In America, one in 10 have something where they can talk about something beyond sports and one in 20 mm. something intimate like feelings, love, you know, things like that. In Israel, friendship is very important. Uh, Marlene Dietrich, it's like the friends you can call up at four o'clock in the morning are the real friends. And in Israel, that's very much the vibe. You know, a mm -hmm. friend is a friend unto, 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 unto death, sadly, sometimes. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you this before, but I didn't. So you were born in Canada, and then you decided to attend Yale University. Where did you did your graduate work there? Where did you do your undergraduate work? I'm a Yaley through and through. Are and, you? Okay. And I was very fortunate to get a scholarship. And, you know, I have to tell you this experience. I went mm -hmm. there for the first time, actually for an interview, which is not usual. And I was walking around in the early morning and I looked up and I saw on all the buildings there was Hebrew writing. And it made me feel this could be my place. Mm -hmm. and the Hebrew writing is from the Bible. It says Urim Vetumim, which are the both light and truth, but also the stones of prophecy that were on the great... Um, priest's breastplate, which were used for divination in the Bible. And it just had like that. If I'm already talking, this I've actually written about in another piece called Who Was My Jung, published in Jung. I think when I was just about to start my training, I suddenly had a, not a panic attack, but a kind of concern about whether this was the right thing for me. I was a young father. I had, you know, three young kids. And, and was this really was my way and so forth. And unbelievably, that night before my final interview, I had a dream. In the dream, I'm walking in a European city through the old town with cobbled streets and high walls. And then I go up some steps and find myself in front of a beautiful old wooden door. And I knock and the door opens and Jung invites me inside. Mm. So it was like, I had to do the training. And also in a deep way, you know, I'm not such a, not like Murray, I'm not such a Jung uh, groupie about him. But I feel very at home in the Indian world because mm. I found my place, despite all the criticisms you can make about him as a person or in his time against Jews, against blacks, against women, against. But I, it's right for me. And that's really wonderful. And in the international community with people like Murray, and I have friends all over the world, really, we share a common language, we share a common tribe. Well, that's interesting you mentioned that because I wanted to ask you how Jung got to Israel. Um, so you finished at Yale. Was your graduate work in anthropology? No, my graduate work was in psychology, but I was very interested in psychological anthropology. Therefore, mm. I took a lot of courses and a lot of uh, emphasis, and I had wonderful teachers. I mean, Yale is a very famous place. 
but also unique in that you have personal relationships with the, as we would say in Hebrew, the great men of their generation, you know, who took mm -hmm. a personal interest in me and were mentors and, and just what I needed and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so I wanted to combine, and I still, I still do both separately, but also together, for instance, treating people from different cultures. You can't just make the assumptions that you can. And maybe I'll just give you one little example. In yeah. Israel, you may know we have ultra-Orthodox Jews, mm -hmm. very inward-looking, very repressive, lots of problems. One of the one of the things that their community is very strong on is not saying bad things about other people. This is seen as something extremely sinful. Even and especially if they're true, you shouldn't say them. Okay. So sometimes I get these ultra orthodox people, and I treat I've treated some, and also people who are in the process of leaving it. And then I because they're very centralistic, and they say I can say, well, how do you feel about your mother? She says, well, she's my mother. That's it. And your father? Oh, yeah, he's my father. He's wonderful. He's wonderful. So I get them to go to their rabbi and say, my therapist tells me I need a special, um, a special like vindication to be able to do, to say bad things about other people. Mm. And they start saying, oh, my mother, let me tell you about my mother. Interesting. Very interesting. So you say that you practice them kind of separately, also together. So what... Yes. What kind of work do you do as an anthropologist? Well, my main interest as anthropologist is in dreams and in death rituals and mm -hmm. mourning, things like that. And this was also very much part of a personal journey of myself. Yeah. As I think if you've read the book, you know that the, the person have, finds, has a kind of like unexpected encounter right at the beginning of the book. Wait, which, this, book, which book are you? This, sorry, this is my novel, The Panic Attack in Pistachio. Yes, which we'll get to. Way, but in any case. Yeah. This is based on my own experience. I had just come back after my undergraduate degree, just before going off to graduate school. I walked in and I found my mother lying, moving, mm -hmm. not moving, and tried to revive her. And this was a kind of trauma that set me on my way that ultimately led to me becoming an anthropologist who studies death and death rituals, especially bad death, and also becoming a Jungian analyst in a way of finding meaning in the face of senseless death. So your the story of finding your mother, I actually saw you in a talk, um, which is available on YouTube. I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, tell that story. Is that in Marked by Fire? Because I found an essay that you wrote uh, in a book that was published, I think it was in 2012, but it was published by Fisher King Press, titled mm -hmm. Marked by Fire, Stories of the Jungian Way. And your chapter is titled Into the Marginal Zone. And yes. it's about your very serious bout with lymphoma. Yes. Um, and is that where you wrote about your I, yes, finding your where, mother? That's where I wrote about it, setting me on my way. And then in a way, setting me forward to be able to deal with with, with this life-threatening lymphoma in a way that was an experience rather than another trauma. Mm, it also makes me aware of another topic that we don't talk about enough, which is illness in analysts. Illness in, in the illness. analyst, yes. What I've written about, and I do workshops on that, and that's something like we don't want to talk about. Everybody wants to be what I call with humor, analyst eternus. <laughs> All right. Right, but it's something we have to think about, and and also to think about what will happen if we die suddenly, and so forth. So in England, for instance, you must by law have a list of clinical executors who will look after your practice in the event of some sort of disability or tragedy or things like that. Mm -hmm. But most people, you know, they're just afraid to do to talk about that. And I think this is one of the important topics to talk about, to embrace. And I love to talk about death in a funny way, you know, and. I've just written another piece. It's it's still in press in a in a book that's coming out called uh, "Confronting Death: Jungians Talk of Discuss This" by um, Louis Morris, which will be coming out in Chiron next year. Uh, so I I think it's very important to talk about death, not to be part of the denial of these things. Perhaps it's not a coincidence that my eldest daughter is a hospice nurse. Ah, uh, so that book confronting death uh, was edited by uh, Luis yeah. Morris. So he was a guest on this program uh, mm -hmm. back in, I think it was episode 94. Uh, we'll definitely look forward to that. But yes, that is a theme. So whenever I schedule an episode, I like to do as much background 
work as I research work on my guests as I can. And I kept finding things that you'd written. And I'm sorry I missed your chapter in Who is My Young? I'm going to have to look for that. Um, but the theme of death, uh, mm. I, I was... It, it, it was a little difficult for me this week, um, mm. but but these are things that, especially in getting into the second half of life, uh, that we need to think about and and uh, contemplate and not shy away from. So uh, that theme of death is in a lot of yeah. your work. And it is. I do. I just say a bit yeah. about it. I really got it from my mother. Her father died when she was four years old oh, okay. from a terrible cancer. And the last memory that she has of him of coming back from the hospital, inoperable, he was going to die within a few days, and him calling all the, all of the children into bed with him. She was four and they were you know younger and older. And he then cuddled up to them and then turned to his wife and said, am I not a lucky man? Oh. So I think the encounter with death makes life more precious, mm. more aware, and gets you down to essentials. Because so much of our time we're like distracted, we're doing yeah. this. Or... Yeah. So when uh, I had found out about your new book, uh, Panic Attacks and Pistachio, and um, we, you and I were uh, emailing each other about it, I mentioned to you the the yes. synchronicity that I had around it. I had an episode. Uh, I was on July 1st. Uh, I, I was taken to the emergency room, which mm -hmm. I, I've never been through anything like that in my life. And I really felt like I was dying and I've never felt that before. I never mm -hmm. felt that physically or emotionally. I felt it on all levels. I felt like mm -hmm. I was dying. And, um, there was nothing wrong with me. I've had so many tests even since then on my heart. And they're telling me that it was some sort of anxiety or panic attack. Mm. And then I saw your book. And so I'm on this heart diet mm -hmm. before, before all the test results came back. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the recommendations is to eat a half a cup of either walnuts, pistachios, or macadamia nuts a day. And mm -hmm. I I thought that's so decadent, pistachio nuts. So anyway, um, but there was just there were other things too that this I know this sounds ridiculous, but there were other things too that were synchronistic with that yes. book. And so I read it cover to cover in one sitting. It is I I didn't know it was gonna happen. And mm. I'd like for you to, I don't want to give anything away. So I want to be really careful yeah. and let you, what yes. do you want to tell us about why you yes. wrote this novel? Well, that, that that's a, a, um, an interesting question. First, the synchronicity is, is very true. And I think what you experience is what's so troubling about panic attacks because they're, they're in the body, but also in the soul. And I think mm -hmm. I say this, it wasn't like a, uh, it wasn't a pan attack in my heart. It was a pan attack yes, in my soul in this way. That's right. The good news that. is that usually you can get good treatments that combine as it were the physical and, and, and soulful treatments and have this sort of thing. But without giving anything away, the book starts in the middle of a panic attack. And it's, it is this overwhelming feeling that you're going to die any minute, a kind of dread physical thing. Uh, and that's the way you think book, book writes. Uh, uh, you know, it's an interesting question why people write. You know, Freud, who wrote a lot, never asked himself why he wrote. I, I think Jung felt he had to write and therefore did write and paint and things like that. Mm -hmm. And um, I think what happened is that I grew up in a family where, where I, I call it a kind of Renaissance uh, person complex, where mm -hmm. if you were just going to be like a doctor, well, that was nice, but it wasn't good enough. You had to do other things. And I do write poetry and I do write these plays and things like that. So I always wanted. I always also liked detective and spy genres. Mm. It reflects something about how we live with a persona. So we, we're like one person to other people, but something different to ourselves. And it has a kind of existential element. And also something about therapy, because you need to be very present as an analyst, but you can't be too revealing of your inner thoughts and feelings. You have to have this in a way like a double reality in this kind of thing. And let me tell you, Laura, how I wrote it. Yeah. And and I'm so glad that you you felt it and you just couldn't put it down mm -hmm. because that's how I wrote it. 
Okay. I, I opened my computer and I said, what is going to happen? I don't know. And I just then started writing and it just trusted the unconscious that something came out. And obviously it went through a process of editing and refining and getting feedback. Sure. But it really, it really wrote itself. Uh, and, well, and it, was, it just flows, you know, and I, I could not put it down. I wondered about what your pro process was writing it. That's interesting. Yeah. So, so I, I mean, I can also remember, I remember when we had to study composition back in high school. Mm. So our teachers were very insistent that you had to write an outline yeah. And then write according to the outline. Well, I'm just a strongly intuitive person. Mm -hmm. So I would write the essay and then write the outline. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. So I think a little bit about this of not knowing. I didn't know who, who was the guilty person. Um, oh. Some people, some of my colleagues here in Israel, weren't happy that, the, that there was an Israeli connection to the story that oh. comes out. Um, hmm. I, I learned a lot about how things work in the book, reading the book. So yeah, I, I, I assume that that was based on fact. Yeah, almost everything there is, is, is double fact. And in some ways, I actually, in some ways, nonfiction is more satisfying for me because I always learn something. A yeah. novel, and especially movies, all my critical aggressive side comes out in movies. If it's not a fantastic movie, I'm like really unhappy. And, you know, and I have, okay. I have a 30 second rule of movies. Like, if it's not great after 30 seconds, it's probably not going to be great later on either because they haven't thought about every shot and everything mm -hmm. like this. But so in a way, it is it is a thriller, but it's also a lot of nonfiction because you learn about all sorts of things that you would, you know. And I, I'm the kind of person who loves, you know, like QI, if you know what that is in England, you know, lots of facts, lots of things like that. Yes. So Same. I'm really glad that, that, uh, that you liked it. I, I was hesitant because, and I was just telling someone, you know, I never read fiction. I just, because I want to, if I'm going to take the time to read, I want to learn something. So, ah, so you're, I, like me. you're like yeah. me in that way. Yeah. I think who yeah. cares about what somebody else made up, yeah. right? But yeah. I mean, coming from you, I would read it no matter yeah. what it was. And so I was very pleasantly surprised by it. So that the book is called Panic Attacks in Pistachio, a Psychological Detective Story. And it was published by Chiron Publications in June. And it is available on Amazon. There will be a link in the description. And that brings me to another book of yours that uh, since we last spoke, uh, we spoke actually it was in August of 2019. I'm just looking at the notes. Uh, when you and Murray, Dr. Stein, Join me for episode 47 on The Analyst and the Rabbi. A few months after that, you had a book published by Chiron with the one with the really long title titled Why Odysseus Came Home as a Stranger and Other Puzzling Moments in the Life of Buddha, Socrates, Jesus, Abraham, and Other Great Individuals. And the first line in the preface of that book is, I come from a culture that encourages people to ask why. And that stopped me right there because I want to thank you for saying that. I feel that my entire life I have been ridiculed, scolded, mm. put down, admonished for constantly asking why. Why mm. this? Why that? And people mm -hmm. would tell me, well, first of all, you ask too many questions. I get that a lot. And that why is the wrong question? No, mm. I want to know why. So I loved it that you opened with that. And tell us about the book. Well, let me just tell you about questions and why Jewish okay. culture, Jewish civilization is very important in culture. When a kid comes home from school, the mother doesn't say, did you get a good grade? But did you ask a good question? Mm. And at the Passover Seder, which is maybe one of the most central rituals, uh, of the thing, the, the whole ritual is based around the youngest children asking, why is this? Why is that? Why are we doing this all together? And so the questioning is building up. And Jewish learning is always based on questioning, on asking, and understanding, and things like that. I grew up in Montreal, which was a very multicultural place. In fact, Canada invented multicultural as a concept. Mm. Mm. And I had such compassion for my Catholic friends you know, where I was encouraged to ask questions and they had to learn the answers off by heart. That's me. I, I grew up Catholic. 
Yeah. So I figured, I figured. So. But but I grew up in northern New Jersey in mm. a community of, it was very multicultural. And we learned all the Hanukkah songs in grade school. So I had a lot of Jewish friends. Well, it was, it was mostly Jewish and Catholic. Right. And uh, so, but I didn't know that about the Jewish tradition, about asking why. So I love that. So yeah. this book is broken up into uh, chapters and you cover, uh, well, what's in the title. And is there anything that you would like to share with us about uh, the why Odysseus, why Socrates, why Buddha? Mm -hmm. Let me tell you, let me tell you, there's only one woman in the book. So I think it's important to emphasize women because, you know. Okay. Uh, I think when reading these, these classic canonical texts, at one point, I just said, wait a second, why? And these are stories, some of, many of these stories are stories that we all know. So the one I think I want to start with is Lot's wife. Okay. Doesn't even get a name. Mm. And when the story is, is a bit complicated and, and quite terrifying, yeah. uh, involving you know, gang rape and all sorts of horrendous things. But the question that I asked is like, the angels who come and save Lot, uh, family, Lot's wife and the two unmarried daughters. He has two married daughters who stay. Uh, he says, don't look back. It's, de- it's death to look back. You must not look back. And yet, as soon as they leave, Lot's wife looks back. So the question is, why did she look back? Mm-hmm. Now, we know from other sources like Eurydice you know, and Orpheus that looking back can be catastrophic. And so I took that in a way like an amplification here that looking back too soon means that you'll be enveloped in the PTSD cloud and will not be able to escape psychologically. But the question is, why did this city have such a pull on her when Lot and his, their daughters were able to escape? So for me, and if you've ever been to Israel, Laura, you, you, you've seen or you've seen pictures of these, these um, salt pillars, giant salt pillars. Mm-hmm. They're unforgettable down by the Dead Sea, uh, not far from where I was with Murray on uh, up high. Mm-hmm. It's in the sense that if you turn back too soon, you become frozen, you become numb, you become frozen in that way and cannot leave and cannot go back. And so that becomes a metaphor for what PTSD does to us. Mm-hmm. We need kind of distance, we need to get away. And you have that in the Bible, interestingly, that Abraham, who was, has a kind of emotional and physical distance, he's able to look back on this event and understand and learn from it, that this is a kind of a consequence. And the Bible maintains this, this, the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah as something hanging over us all the time, mm-hmm. that if we go down the wrong road, and I think we feel this a lot today about climate change or nuclear destruction, the destruction is, is, is an inevitable consequence of our evil deeds and doing it in this sort of way. I also feel in a way that, that uh, Lot's wife was from Sodom. This was her life. She'd never been outside of it. And so the pull of that was kind of extremely strong, and very, very powerful to do that. Let me give you another example. This is a perhaps a somewhat less known story to, to an American audience, but it's, it's from the Mahabharata and specifically from the Bhagavad Gita, mm-hmm. which this is a war between the cousins. It's a world war. That It's very clear who was good and who was bad, except in Indian world that always flips back and forth. There's the, the, the leader of the troops, Arjuna. He's the middle brother, but he's, he's the hero par excellence. And he, he, just before he's like going to start this world-destructing magic, the war, he asked his chariot driver, who indeed is the god Krishna, to have him have a look at the other side. All of his cousins, his teachers, his actually his older brother, all of them are there lined against him. And suddenly he says, I can't do it. Now the Bhagavad Gita goes in a different direction of saying why you have to do your duty, your, your caste duty, your spiritual duty. But people haven't asked, why did he not want to do it? Why did he suddenly feel weak? Why did he suddenly reject war? And here it links up to another fantastic story it's too complicated into all the details, but basically Arjuna and his brother and wife, they have to pretend to be 
somebody else. So not even the gods will able to discover them. They have mm. to be in disguise. And Arjuna, who's like the, the most hypo-masculine guy, mm. he turns into a woman and becomes the dancing teacher in the king's harem. And he spends an entire year of that. And I link these two episodes like we would do in therapy, that when he saw his cousins, he suddenly related to the world, not as a warrior, but as a woman. Mm. He understood that this is, this is wrong. This is against, against these people, against what, we really, what, what life is about and transmitting life and caring is about. And so it brought forth his, his other side of things. So in each of the stories, I find this kind of pivotal point. Jesus, in a way, is one of the most interesting because people, you know, I take Jesus very seriously, particularly because he lived as a Jew and died as a Jew. He had very profound teachings. And his problem, the one I've, I've not his problem, is one of the things, he's coming back to Jerusalem for the first time. He sees a fig tree in the distance. And suddenly he says, oh, I want figs. Mm-hmm eat figs and he rushes up and he sees there are no figs and he curses you know the the, the man of love and compassion he curses this fig tree and later the fig tree you know withers and dies now that's a difficult enough story by itself but anybody who's lived in the holy land knows this story takes place at easter time or passover time spring there are no figs no so it has to be about something else ah. there i'll leave it so he wants something else. And I connect it to something that I don't think we talk about enough, which is the psychology of the impossible, wanting the impossible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wanting the impossible. So this book is available uh, on Amazon. It uh, was published by Chiron. And that brings me to the next uh, creative piece of yours that, I would like to discuss today, which is another um, play that you wrote, co-wrote with Murray Stein, and it's the two of you in dialogue. And it's titled My Lunch with Thomas. And it is very moving. It was very emotional for me because it's about Dr. Stein's meeting with Dr. Thomas Arst, who was the co-editor of Jung's Red Book for Our Time. I did an episode with the both of them and with a couple of the contributors from the series. And uh, I was actually the one that told Dr. Stein of uh, Dr. Arts's passing. Uh, That was a very, very difficult time. So I thought it was really brilliant uh, how this play was done. I I thought uh, before somebody (laughs) told me it wasn't the case that it was recorded on the train. Uh, it it sounds like it was recorded on the train. I was wondering how did you get such great wow. sound? Yeah, it was, yeah. Well, so this was some, back, Go ahead, go ahead. Uh, there were sound effects that that were yeah. added uh, yeah. later, um, but it's done so well and it's so moving. It's fifty minutes long. It's audio only, and that it is also available in its entirety on YouTube. So tell us about my lunch with Thomas. Well, my lunch with Thomas, it was, this goes back to Louis Morris, who was our director. And so this was recorded in Murray's office in Zurich. Okay. With, with Louis and a sound expert. And we, we, you know, to do these things, we read it through a couple of times and then he, he edited and then he added these brilliant sound effects. So you really yeah. feel it on a Swiss train. Mm-hmm. And indeed throughout the, throughout the play, because Murray is like pointing out things on route. And I'm relating them to things in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. you know, like tunnels in Jerusalem and tunnels in, in Switzerland and things like that. But and this, do, you, do you remember, I just want to jump in. Do you remember what you told him about when Dr. Stein said, there's Jung waving at us from his garden? Do you remember what you told Dr. Stein? Yeah, no, remind me. You said that you were glad that, let me see if I ha- yeah. have it here. You were Oh yeah, I thought I didn't know Jung. Something like that, right? You you said, you know, Murray, Jungian psychology speaks deeply to me, but I'm glad I never had the chance to meet Jung. So he can always be my Jung and not the real Jung. Yeah. What, well, what did you mean by that? Well, I'll tell you, I think a lot of people Jung became a kind of um deified in his own lifetime. 
Yeah. And, and I would say he himself was very ambivalent to that. Mostly he was against it. One of my favorite quotes, you know, my, to my students, my, my candidate students, I give oh. a list of my favorite quotes. And oh. one of my favorite, by Jung, one of my favorite quotes is, thank God I'm not a Indian. Mm. Because he didn't want devotees. On the other hand, he had an ego like everybody else. He liked to be admired. He liked people. Sure. Uh, I, back to friends, I think he did have some friends who were able to, to speak to him, speak, speak directly. Mm -hmm. And there's a lovely quote by Oscar Wilde that I use in the chapter for Murray, in Murray's honor, in the festival. Mm -hmm. And Oscar Wilde certainly knew this. He says, a good friend stabbed you in the front. Yes. So he says, right up, you know, and, and can tell you things that nobody else will tell you. Mm -hmm. And that's what I have with Murray. They were very straight up with, with each other. Mm -hmm. There's even a word in Hebrew, it's hard to translate, but it, it means like straight talk without mm -hmm. being concerned that the other person is going to be hurt and so forth. Because it's for the sake of the word. The Hebrew word is dugri. 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 Yeah, it means Arabic. It means straight, like go straight or tell the truth. But in Israeli Hebrew, it means like, uh, you know, like if I would do it to you, it says, you know, Laura, you have these new glasses. Well, really, you should go back and get some better ones. That would be mm, dugri. And you gotcha. wouldn't be hurt because it would be like, okay. Right. so Okay. Yeah. Whereas in American culture, it's like it's relationships are too fragile. You know, you wouldn't say yes. something like that. You know, you would hurt this person, you're too afraid. And so it gives a kind of independence and maybe in some ways easier for individuation because mm. you can be by yourself. Let me tell you how we wrote this. Mm -hmm. It was so interesting. I mean, it was Murray's idea. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in a way you're in the play, Laura, because, you know, you told Murray, uh, Dr. Stein to you, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, that he died. And it was, it was such a shock to him. And it was like a story had to tell somebody. And so, and so, in a way, there's that story of his relationship with Thomas, including this very uh, central dream that we talk about a number of times. But then we go off on other tangents that are somehow connected to this. I mean, one of the most remarkable is towards the end, if you remember this, uh, Laura Murray suddenly turns to me and says, what do you think about life after death? Yeah. And then we kind of talk that over. You know, I take a more traditional Jewish view that life after death isn't so important. You know, this life is not important. Yeah. And Murray takes the idea of, well, you know, there are signs, there are indications, you know, and to be open to it, uh, that was very interesting. But how we would do it, because mostly we meet, you know, Murray lives in Switzerland and I live in Jerusalem. Occasionally we, we, we travel and work together. Mm -hmm. But he would write a line and then I would write a line. And he would then write a third line and a fourth line. And then at some point we would say, well, wait a second, let's look at this workings and needs work and so forth. And then we would meet on Skype, and then we would mm -hmm. read it aloud. Read it and aloud. Mm -hmm. Read it aloud. And that's something I recommend every budding writer. It's always write and then speak it aloud, because then you'll hear it and hear whether that's right. Mm -hmm. In a way, that looking at it doesn't really pick that up and so forth. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm, I'm glad this touched you. I think I've never, Murray and I, we've never got such profound responses as to this you know, this play, the, My Lunch with, with Thomas. Really? Very poignant, writing yes. things, how it stirred them up, how it connected to calling things. You know, we Murray's written, like, many, many things, and sometimes they're, you know, he's got also things. But I think, and also particularly in Israel, people would, like, write, you know, I don't know, maybe I've translated 25 responses from Murray about how, oh, how wow. much grab them and grip them and, and, and so forth. And I think also this, this was brilliant to have the idea of a train because it's like a liminal time mm. it's in between. But it's like, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, Laura, you know, like sitting on a plane and then somebody comes and they tell you their whole life story and mm -hmm. you never see it again. Mm -hmm. So there is this kind of transition thing. Mm -hmm. And then the end of the play takes, takes us to Eronos, which is then to the next play. So it was also a transition that way. So I heard about Eronos the play just kind of by accident, but I don't know much about it. And so it was performed there. Well, it, it, had a, it had an opening in Davos at, during the Jungian Odyssey, which okay. is this long uh, event that uh, Ursula Wirtz and others run. And it was in the hotel ah. that the Magic Mountain is placed. So it was very historical with a beautiful view 
but it, but the, the the conditions for a play were very poor. There was no lighting. There was no sound. It was difficult. Were you there? Yes, yes. Because we also had to rehearse. We were rehearsing in person. So you you okay? So you were not in the analyst and the rabbi. You and Murray, Doctor Stein, co-wrote it. Now I'm yes. calling him Murray because we just had the fest drift, and everybody's calling him Murray, and I even said Murray. Okay, let's just call him Murray. Let's call him Murray. Let's call him Murray. So you two were not in the analyst and the rabbi, but you two wrote it. Yes. Right, but then. But we actually, for the analyst and the rabbi, we wrote it together. And then we directed it together. I mean, he was more of the okay. senior. It's also his ensemble. What's amazing about the analyst and the rabbi, and again about the Eronos, is that mm -hmm. everyone, the actors, the musician, the film director, the authors, are all Jungian analysts. Mm -hmm. I love that. And of it's course, amazing, right? you know, that you know, you're not like a narrow kind of person and so forth. And some of the people, like John Hill, I mean, he's really professional level uh, actor actor yeah. so so Aranos tell us what the premise is I know nothing about yeah. it okay well Aranos is a place on the on the on the shores of Lake Maggiore oh yes yeah. so wait, I just want to preface that so I do know about the Aranos conferences okay. and the location right. I so the play, the play. oh yes yeah, so you were getting there okay yeah, I was getting there. I was, yeah. <laughs> so the play is a is a representation of the Eronos the Conference in 1947. Okay. Which is unique, not only that Olga and Jung were still coming, but mm -hmm. also Erich Neumann came for the first time and it mm -hmm. changed his life and changed his career through this connection through Olga. And she asked him to, to write a preface to her collection of photographs and it grew into the Great Mother. Oh, and okay. Changed his life. Also, Rabbi Beck came which in a way, it was the only time he came, he was already uh, quite elderly. And also, um, we give a big role to Aniela Yaffe, who's in a way like the unsung heroine of the Jungian world. Yes. She, she was spectacular, and also such a, a pixie, such a wonderful, mm. lively person, if you've seen mm. films of her and so forth. Yeah. And so we have these five people, and in some ways, it's not a traditional drama, there's not like a uh, a catharsis. There's not a tension. Okay. It's it's a play about coming to terms with evil. Mm. It's about coming to terms with with uh, destiny. Mm. Uh, between each scene, there's cello music, live cello music, which is gives a kind of depth and grounding to the play. It, it in a way begins and ends with uh, Olga Frobekapitan, who who started and maintained. Eronos, I mean, all of these years. And, you know, the, the actress is also, Darian Pictet, she's a very dramatic person. You know, she, she goes through like a torment before the play, before the conference begins, is anybody going to come? And she herself had many dramatic losses and things this way. And we also use parts of Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, where, which actually began at Eronos a few years later, but we shifted earlier so that Jung tells Daniela his first dream that he remembers. Mm -hmm. the, uh, and so, so it's interesting. I'm, and I think we decided quite, quite dramatically, but think that the play needed a narrator. So now mm -hmm. Murray is the narrator in the play. And so he begins to play like kind of like a Shakespearean narrator and moves along from scene to scene and, gives a continuity. Uh, we also brought in a professional theater director from New York, who's a very close friend of mine, Michael Posnick. And so he, he also came for the opening and also through uh, Zoom, he's been extremely helpful in, in helping us shape the things. It's, it's in addition to the traditional ensemble, we brought up two other Jungian analysts uh, who interestingly don't have a theater background, but we were able to, I gave them some private acting lessons and things like that. And oh. they really, they really, how do, in Hebrew we would say, you know, they, we, we drew them up. You know, they stepped up, I guess you'd say in America. They stepped up to the role and are, are like dramatic and strong and this sort of thing. Most of the play takes place around the round table, which was the centerpiece of Eronos. Mm -hmm. And 
after the first performance, I went with my 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 beloved wife and the director to Eronos, which I had never been to, even though I wrote this with Murray, this whole play about it, but never been there. And it was way beyond all expectations. Was it's, it? It's so spiritual. It has a kind of simplicity and was in nature. And just to think of all these these great men who's, and yeah. women, mostly men, because Olga, like a, a strong woman, didn't like women, I think. so. <laughs> but um. to have all of these people hear the ghost, and it still is used in the library. It was, it was a high. It was a high for three mm. days. I hope to go one day. I tried to go last year, uh, mm -hmm. but I had a scheduling conflict and couldn't go. But I do hope to go yes. at and some point. Yes, just just to follow up on Eleanor, so it's going to have a live, full, full, full stage performance in Zurich on October twentieth, and really, then, yes, yes, that will be like a proper performance. Okay, so where will that be? That will be in the Saint Anthony's Church. You can get okay. this this information through ISAP, the you know International School of yeah. Psychology in Zurich, and then. Uh, it was going to be made the next day, fall in performance, into a podcast play because there's not so much action. So we decided not to do it as a video, but to do the podcast. And I think it'll work quite well. And we have a few other live performances. Uh, so when you say podcast, you mean the audio? Audio, I mean recorded. Audio. Yeah. Yes, and it'll be available. Will it will? I it will be available. I don't know when it will be available. Okay. And it will have also this professional uh, sound effects feeling. Great. Okay, so Luis maybe will be doing that? Yes, not maybe. He's going to be doing it with his okay. sound, wonderful sound technician. Okay, yeah. great. I didn't want to assume. Okay, wonderful. Yeah. So I really look forward to that. That sounds fascinating. I know I follow Darian and I follow each other on Instagram. So that's how I knew about mm. it, but I didn't know the details. And so uh, I will get on this and make sure I have the information on our website and uh, post it on social media as well. Great, great, lovely. So, wow, that was a lot. Uh, yeah. Well, let I, me talk about another topic that, that sure. I'm about and also relatively neglected, and that's brothers and sisters. And this I've written about and I give a lot of workshops and also about replacement children and many, many other associated topics with this. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that if you have a good relationship to your brother or sister, it's such a plus. But majority of people don't have a good relationship. Mm -hmm. Neutral is like actually good because sometimes it's like, why am I stuck with this person who I have nothing to do with, who's my adversary, who's this kind of thing. And I was inspired by a question, which is, what would happen if Jung and Freud had not focused on Greek mythology, but focused on the Bible? How would depth psychology be different? Huh. And the, the answer that I suggest is that it would show the crucial, important relationships between brothers and sisters. Mm. The first story out of the garden is Cain and Abel, and everybody remembers that. And that one is both about how easily we are polarized with our, you have siblings, uh, Laura? Yes, I have an older brother. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We're yeah. nothing alike at yeah. all. Well, that yeah. also very typical because everything we learned in psychology, you know, 101 is that nature and nurture. But if you think about siblings, they have more genetics than anybody. They grow up in the right. most environment and right. they're never anything alike. In fact, they're often completely polarized. Yeah. Yeah, so you delivered those lectures. So the book yes. is titled Brothers and Sisters, and they're from your 2014 Fay Lecture Series, which okay. the Fay Lectures uh, are almost always turned into a book. And uh, there will be a link to that in the show notes. So I didn't have a chance to read that. And yeah. Well, um, maybe you don't have to read it because I'm hoping to do a second edition. Uh, and it for Yes, it just recently came up, so I... I have the rights now from from uh, Texas A and M, so I'll probably mm -hmm. do Chiron because it's it's such a painful topic, and it's like it is, it is a painful topic, and I didn't know what you said. I didn't know that most people had, I mean, on average or at best, the majority uh, 
a neutral relationship with their sibling. I always like, I always think everybody's really close to their siblings and yeah. And, well, because uh, I think, I think this, the brother sister archetype is so powerful. You know, you can say about a friend, she's like a sister to me and everybody knows what you're talking about, but it's rare that a sister is really like a sister. Mm, friends are very different from siblings. Yeah. 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 So you you would be updating it or adding to it? How would you? I think I will add to it more. And, mm. but, yeah. Kind of and really... Jung had a sister that we don't hear much about. Well, it's very interesting because I talk about that in the book. He did have a sister who was born about nine years after him. And that gap more than seven means that you're not going to be psychologically brother-sister. It's just too big. You're not going through developmental periods together. You're not sharing things and so forth. And he was quite startled by her birth, which he, he, he saw and was disturbed. And he says we were not close. It's what I call sibling strangers. Mm. But I feel she made a real contribution to the psychology of types because when she died, from a from you know in a simple operation she died she never married she stayed with the mum you know very typical for unmarried sisters to stay at home and so forth uh, she had everything in order even like a good sensation type and I think that helped him crystallize how people have different types and the way she made it a very powerful contribution through her differentness. I didn't know that. That's very interesting. Wow. And that I heard that about Emma, that Jung's wife, Emma, had, had a very strong sensation function. Yes, she did. But I think she, she also developed these other things. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm, you, know, you have to think that these things are true, but they're all, Jung felt that it should be in process. You should learn about your clumsy side, get to know the other side. About you, you know. So like, again, I'm very intuitive, but you know, you know, changing a light bulb, that's a real challenge. But, you know, <laughs> work with that inferior function there. Yeah. So a couple more things before we close here. Well, we did go over the chapter that you contributed to Murray Stein's Festdrift. Uh, that Festdrift, is that how the correct pronunciation? Yes. Do you know? Yes. yes, yes. Fest is festive, like festive. Mm -hmm. And shift is like written in the sense of something written, a book. So a festive book. Festive so book. We don't translate it in English. It's like Gestalt or... Uh, mm. Yeah, I noticed that. I noticed that they... Or Esprit de corps. Right. They kept the word. Uh, right. The title of that book uh, is Individuation Psychology, Essays in Honor of Murray Stein. Your chapter is titled, Who is a Friend? Friendship in the Process of Individuation. And you go over what is true friendship, the concept of frenemies, which I thought was interesting, and ending as friends. And then there is a new book in the works, another new book in the works that uh, I think is still on track to be published this fall by Chiron. It is The Shadow mm -hmm. and the Problem of Evil, Six Examinations. And your chapter is on the shadow and the search for a new ethic. It is a dialogue with Murray Stein. Uh, and you bring in Neumann's uh, ethical awareness, the three stages mm -hmm. of ethical awareness. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if there's anything that you'd like to mention about the up that upcoming book. Well, I like dialogue, you know, mm -hmm. and often I do workshops together. I like this, this idea and so forth. Um, having the one voice, like I really hate that there's one teacher. In our institute, for instance, we try to teach always in pairs. So there uh -huh. isn't one monolithic voice, that it's a dialogue, and the candidates can see us fighting, you know, and getting the sense of what's really at stake here, and so forth. So I think it was really good. Th these were, um, I think, a webinar, originally uh, the, the, the book, and, um, you know, in, I, I also think uh, that uh, ethics is something that we don't deal with enough. Mm -hmm. I, I teach uh, a lot on stimulating ethical awareness, that you have to prevent problems by thinking through, through um, in a Talmudic way, about thinking about cases. You know, 
what if this is what is this situation? What how you would deal in a situation? H hang on, well, hang on, Doctor Abramovich. You were breaking up there. Would you repeat the last thing you said? The Talmudic. Yeah. Well, yeah, the Talmudic idea is like to think about a case, for instance. Okay. Uh, to think in advance about ethical difficulties you might enter into. Okay. And try to think them, and not just as it were, be caught short in different ways. I mean, Such as, well, I mean, it's just bringing me back to what you said at the beginning of the episode about analysts who are ill yes. and don't That's have right. a plan. That's right. That's right. And don't. And it's very difficult to go to a colleague in our in our institute. Uh, we have a, a ethical code says if, for instance, take this thing about a, a sick analyst. If you mm -hmm. feel that analyst is not performing adequately and you mm. don't say something to him then you're you're at fault but we also specify how to do it yeah you have to do it in pairs somebody who knows the person well and somebody who doesn't know that you start with compassion that you say either needs help or needs evaluation or needs supervision in this sort of way and we want him to continue to be a member of the community but we don't want him to do something that's against the values of the community or against the well-being of his patients. Mm -hmm. It's not, I don't say it's easy, but it has to come from a community that's committed to those kinds of values. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So in this chapter, uh, you, you also bring up evil and you say that evil occurs when ego is trying to cut itself off from the self or when ego identifies with self in what I call the God complex that mm -hmm. occurs in cults and in cult leaders. And I thought that was really interesting because, because of the world today. Right. So yeah. uh, would you say a little bit about that? A little bit more about that? Well, sadly, it's a very predictable phenomenon, and most cult leaders, uh, you know, I don't know who's the leaders in the States, but, you know, most cult leaders actually start off wanting to do good and have a vision mm -hmm. and want to help, and then at a certain point, they become God, like a god to their community, that everything they say is, yeah. is, is right. And then if they don't have a way, you know, Roman, Roman emperors had a slave that says, who would tell them, you're not God. And unless you have and like survived? a well, it was no. It was part of a. It was part of the triumph to, to kind of like understand the dangers of inflation, of grandiosity, and things like that. So, but what also I wonder about the people that are telling them how great they are and going along with everything they say and defending mm -hmm. them to mm -hmm. the naysayers. Yes. What about their psychology? Well, that's that's the way it's usually understood is is like Eric Fromm's Escape from Freedom. That is, we don't we don't want freedom, despite whatever American says. We want somebody to tell us what to do. We want to give our yeah. freedom to this great father, you know, and for them to make decisions for us. And, yeah. and 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 there's something deeply seductive about that kind of thing. And therefore, you know, when you, you just, listen, there's so many examples. It's such a predictable phenomenon from Hitler you know, through the coup in Niger, you know, of like, I'll take care of you, don't worry, and if you don't, we're going to, you know, um, kill you or take take something like that. Mm -hmm. But back to the cult leader, I think at a certain point, you know, this is what I said, at some point you just say, well, see, in a way, for a good leader, a healthy leader, his own interest should match the interests of, the, of his people or his community. Mm. Mm -hmm. you know, that's what you want. You don't want yeah. people to be selfless, you know, and so forth. You want them to do it, but easily it then becomes, well, you know, what I want is good for everybody. And mm -hmm. if nobody can challenge him in these cults, I mean, again, cults are very predictable. You know, what's the difference between like a sect, <laughs> which is perhaps a group, and a cult? One is that you cut yourself, off, cut people off from their family. That's mm. you know, very clear cult-like phenomenon. You know, your devotion has to be like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so we look. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say we look forward to this book uh, coming out shortly. Uh, it is the Shadow and the Problem of Evil: Six Examinations, and uh, each chapter is written by, I believe, written by a Jungian analyst. Uh, I didn't know if there was anything else you wanted to say about that. No, I think it's fine. And I'm looking through the rest of my notes to see if we missed anything. 
uh, I think that's everything that I had. Um, maybe I do want to ask for a comment or two from you on, uh, and I'm trying to think of what to call this. It was a paper that you wrote that was published in the Journal of Jungian Theory and Practice back in 2004. And it was on, um, uh, training institutes, um, what's the word? Separating, breaking apart, splitting, Split. splitting. Split. Yeah. That's the yeah. word that's always used for that. Yeah. And the um, title, would you pronounce the names for me? Yes. Rabin? Mm -hmm. Rabban Gamliel and Rabbi Yoshua, the analysts in the training institute. This mm -hmm. was a paper, I mean, I'm very happy you took that down. This is a paper I wrote as kind of self-therapy after we had oh. an extremely painful three-way split in in what was originally the society that Neumann had founded. And it was not about any ideological things. It was about people's personality disorders and mm -hmm. power and decisiveness and inability to talk about things. And in retrospect, that split was the best thing that happened to our institute, you know, the Israel Institute for Indian Psychology because we try to understand the process. We try to prevent this kinds of splitting and, and antagonisms. For instance, in our code of ethics, you can't say bad things about analysts in public. You should go to them personally if you want to confront them, but you can't just badmouth people. That's, what, in, that's an ethical. In whose code of ethics? In our, in our institute, the new institute. Okay. I mean, new institute, we're 25 years and so forth. So rather than talk directly about what happened in the split, I, I use this very interesting narrative in the Talmud that reflected many of the qualities of splits. And you have to imagine that all, over half of the Jungian Institutes have split. So, over you know, half. Over yeah. half. And it's, again, it's not only Jungian Institutes, all sorts of things kind of split, but it's, it has a difficulty. I mean, in some ways, the best institutes, San Francisco, SAP London, um, the French Institute, they haven't split, but many, many other places. Often, you know, I do a lot of, of work uh, teaching and supervising rooter groups, and they often split even before they, they qualify. Mm. And so it's natural, it's normal, it's healthy. I don't say it's natural and normal no. and healthy. It has to no. Be, no, no, I don't think it's extremely painful to everybody. Sure, okay. So it's yeah. not like, you know what, we're going to do things differently, so we're going to go over here. It's not that. That would be good, I think, and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, so I do. I do then use this 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 story to say how can you deal with conflict in a way that is doesn't lead to splits, or if you need to split, doesn't lead to this painful wounding, mutual wounding, yeah. where everybody is wounded in in these uh, different ways. Yeah, there were. There was a lot in here. I, I don't want to say it publicly. Um, my experiences with this sort of thing. There is a lot in here. And thankfully, thanks to you, whoever, it the entire paper is available online. So it is on uh, young-israel.org, their mm -hmm. website. I will have a link to it in the show notes. I highly recommend anybody who's curious about, and I'm going to reread it. Um, yeah. Well, I will say the unique thing about our institute is besides we have a wonderful atmosphere in the group and a kind of a, to a, a tolerance and, and we're very active internationally, but also we have this online library of articles by members. Uh, many of them are in English so that you can okay. see other articles by, by not only me, but my my colleagues and, and great and they're on that website young-israel.org right. that's right okay wonderful okay well is there anything else you'd like to mention before we wrap up um no i think i won't i'm resisting telling a joke so i think i'll, I'll hold off you're gonna hold off all right you're welcome to yeah well i will tell you maybe i'll tell you one about which is back to jung as uh, being idealized Okay. So there was a very famous Hasidic Rebbe, like a rabbi, a very famous mystical figure, and he was about to die. 
And all of his devotees were gathered around him and they said, do you have a last word for us before you go to the world of truth? So he sighed and he said, yes, life is like a fountain. <gasps> Everybody was so amazed by this wisdom and so forth until finally some old woman said, why? Why is life like a fountain? You know, back to questions. Why? I need to know why. <laughs> okay, excuse me, Rebbe, but could you explain to us why life is like a fountain? So he sighs and he says, so life isn't like a fountain. Thank you, Laura. Please visit the website speakingofyoung.com for more information on everything discussed in this episode and to access all of our previous episodes available to stream or to download for free. Speaking of Young is also available on YouTube podcasts, which you can access by subscribing to our channel, Jungian Laura. It's free. Just click the subscribe button below. This podcast is made possible by Temenos Dream, the revolutionary new dream recording app available for iOS and Android. Having trouble remembering your dreams? Now you can record them by speaking into your phone or typing them into the app. Keep your dreams organized, search the built-in symbol dictionary, and have AI illustrate your dreams all within the app. Download it for free today by clicking on the link on the episode page or in the description box below. Create a free account by October 15th and get free premium access for life. I created Speaking of Young eight years ago as a free podcast. All of our content is free to access, but it is not free to produce. Please visit the support page on our website at speakingofyoung.com support to help keep this podcast alive. A big thank you to recurring donors John Temple, Ralph Gotzelman, Eric Hoops, Doreen Gordon, and Mark Johnson for their ongoing generosity and support. So with special thanks to Murray Stein, Stephen Buser, and Jennifer Fitzgerald at Chiron Publications, I am Laura London, and you've been watching a very special video edition of Speaking of Young.